Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. I'll be preaching this morning through verses 45 through 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking His blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Lord, we thank You that You have ordained the preaching of Your Word as a means of grace to call us to repentance, to edify our souls. We pray now that as we study the Gospel of John and the sermon, that You will open our hearts and ears to hear marvelous things from Your Word, that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord. John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country at Jerusalem to uh, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he, will come, that he will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. May God bless the reading of his holy word and let his church say, Amen. Amen. Here we see in this passage of Scripture the plot and, ironically, the prophecy of Jesus' death. This is the trial of Jesus. He'll be arrested and there will be a trial to follow, but this is truly the trial of Jesus. Here He is condemned. This is a certainty at this point. In the minds of the Jewish leaders, Jesus must die. And so, our Savior is approaching nearer the cross. He is on the road to the cross, you might say, here in this passage of Scripture. How do we reconcile the fact that Satan is at work in this, and yet at the same time, 
God is the sovereign king who rules over the world. Is this God's plan that's being accomplished in the death of Jesus, or is this the Sanhedrin's plan that will be accomplished? And is this Satan's plan to have Jesus arrested and put to death? And the answer to that is, mm mm-hmm, yes, God's plan is at work here, and of course this is Satan's desire to put Jesus to death. John Calvin, speaking to this end, he says that it is evident that Satan is under the power of God and is so ruled by his authority that he must yield obedience to it. And interesting. He says that Satan is wholly bent on contumacy and rebellion and is yet at the same time by God bound and fettered. Both are true of Satan. And as a result, Calvin explains, Satan can only execute those things for which permission has been given to him, and thus, however unwilling, obeys his Creator, being forced, whenever he is required, to do him service. So Satan is at the same time rebelling against God and fulfilling God's plans and purposes in the wisdom and sovereignty of God. We read about this in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 where these two things are held in tension for us as the Apostle Peter declares that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was the plan of God and in the foreknowledge of God for Jesus to be delivered up to the cross to die. And yet, Peter says, he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, both are true. It was God's plan that he should be delivered up to die. It was in his foreknowledge. And yet, it was done by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Peter says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In our passage today, we see both the plot and the prophecy of Jesus' death. We read what Jesus' death is going to accomplish. And ironically, it is from the lips of those who are culpable for His death. I'll show you that here in a moment. God's plans are not going to be thwarted by Satan. God's plans are not going to be frustrated by the Sanhedrin. God's plans are not going to be interrupted by the lawless men who will arrest and crucify Jesus, but rather, God's plans are going to be accomplished through the death of Jesus. And as I mentioned, they speak to that themselves. Ironically, we'll see that here in this passage. So what then did the death of Jesus accomplish? Let's consider that question. What did the death of Jesus accomplish? Let's look first at the plot to kill Jesus. Just by reminder of context, Jesus has resurrected Lazarus from the dead. That was the sixth and final sign in the Gospel of John. It is you would say the most remarkable of the six signs presented to us in the Gospel of John. It is an undeniable fact 
that Jesus is doing signs. And as a result of that, verse 45, John states for us that many Jews have put their faith in Jesus. There were those who were there who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. They heard Jesus' words. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. They know that Lazarus was not only partially dead in the minds of the Jews, but he was completely dead in the minds of the Jews. And Jesus resurrected Lazarus on the fourth day. And as a result of that, many of these Jews have put their faith in Jesus, but not all of them. There's a contrast for us in verse 46. Some of these Jews who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, they went to their religious leaders to ask for an explanation. They went to their religious leaders to report what had been done. They had already done this. We've seen behavior similar to this with Jesus healing the man who was born blind from birth where Jesus healed him and there were some who witnessed that miracle and they went to the Pharisees and asked for an explanation. What are we to make of this? You say that this man Jesus is not the Messiah. You say that we shouldn't believe in Him and, and you're contrary to Him and yet here He is doing all these signs and miracles. Is there something about Jesus that you're not telling us? What are you going to do about Jesus if He truly is who He says He is? How can you let Him continue on in this vein? And so, the council of the Sanhedrin was called to a meeting. We think that the Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 members, mostly those who were Sadducees. These were religious leaders and scholars in Israel who denied the resurrection. And a minority of the Sanhedrin were comprised of the Pharisees, those who affirmed the resurrection. There were also on that council, uh, the high priest was on that council. There were also other chief priests, other religious leaders. And it was a quasi religious council and quasi-civil council, right? They are making decisions in Israel that affect both politics and religion. And I thought about this from my time working in Tallahassee with state of Florida. I picked up this term, uh, being near the capital, working near the capital, that it is where the sausage is made, so to speak, right? It is where the plans are made, where laws and legislation is drafted and carried out. And that's what we're seeing here in John 11. The Sanhedrin is where the sausage is made, right? These are the movers and shakers in Israel. This is the swamp of Israel, okay? To borrow a, a political term from a couple of years ago. That's what this is. That's what we are seeing here. And they are gathered together and they take counsel among themselves, and they begin to deliberate about Jesus. And we're given an audience. John provides that for us in verse 47. Look with me at the text. What are we to do? His miracles and signs are undeniable now. They can no longer deny it. Lazarus has been resurrected. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They no longer deny it. They confess Jesus is performing signs. 
If we let him go on like this, they reason, everyone will believe in him. People are going to see the signs. They are undeniable. And if he continues on like this, they reason together. Everyone's going to put their faith in Jesus. People are going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. People are going to believe that Jesus is the Christ. People are going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. They're going to put their faith in Him if we allow Him to continue on like this. And as a result, they reason, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They lived in constant fear of this. 586, the Babylonians had come into Israel. They carried many away into captivity. They killed many. And they destroyed the temple. And so those exiles who had returned lived in constant fear that a foreign army would come in and destroy the temple and take away their nation. And so the Sanhedrin is concerned about that. If we allow this Jesus to continue on, there'll be an uprising. People will revolt against our leadership and they will think that Jesus is the political figure that God has sent to be king over Israel. And if the Romans catch word of that, they will send their armies in here and take over this place. Interesting word here that they choose. They will take away both our Place. Did you notice that there? Both are place. This is a way of referring to the temple. We see that in the book of Acts where Stephen is charged and he's going to be stoned and they accuse Stephen saying that he always speaks against this place, the temple. And so they viewed the temple as their place of Worship, their identity, their national and religious identity was tied up with the temple itself. And so in their plot to kill Jesus, here's the great irony of this passage. Their plot is to save the temple by destroying a temple. Isn't that ironic? You say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, Jesus has already called Himself the temple, hasn't He? In John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this what? Not this person. Not this body. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this what? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rise it up. And just in case there's any question what Jesus was talking about, John tells us He was speaking about the temple of His body. Think about the prologue of the Gospel of John. Jesus is introduced to us as the Word made flesh who tabernacled among us. Another concept, another bit of theology of temple and God's presence dwelling with His people. Think about Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and the theological conversation that ensued between the two of them. And the woman at the well asking Jesus, where's the right place to worship? Is it over on Mount Gerizim in Samaria? Or is it in Jerusalem at, at the Temple Mount? Where's the right place to worship? And Jesus tells her the conclusion of that, that there's going to be a time coming when 
neither will be the right place to worship. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. They will worship God not at a place, but they will worship God through a person. What did the death of Jesus accomplish? By His death, Jesus redeems a place for worship. By His death, Jesus redeemed a place for worship. Last Sunday, my family was watching Christian programming, like a church service, and there was singing taking place, and I was doing some other things in the house, and Gene and Marie called me and to, the, to the TV, and they were watching, and Cecilia, our oldest daughter, she saw something in this church service that was completely strange and foreign to her. She began to ask about it. She was watching this church service, and there was a stage in this church, and there was an individual holding a microphone, singing on this stage while all the rest of the congregation was seated listening to this singer. And she had never seen anything like this before. And she said, Mom and Dad, what is happening here? Why is the church sitting there watching this person sing? She'd never seen that before. It was so strange and foreign to her that, that God's people would be gathered together for worship and not be worshiping. That God's people would be gathered together for worship and they would sit as an audience observing someone on a stage sing a song and that they themselves would not be involved corporately in the congregational worship of our holy God. And I said, it is strange, isn't it? Cecilia, it is strange. They should be singing together, shouldn't they? You understand that the great privilege that we have as Christians to gather together corporately to worship the Lord. You understand that there has been, through the death of Jesus, a place redeemed for us to worship, that our worship takes place here on earth, but our worship truly takes place where? In heaven. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10? That we enter the holy places by His blood. And when we gather together for worship, that we are entering into the holy places through the blood of Jesus. He goes on to say, through the curtain. That's a reference to the temple, isn't it? There was a temple there that separated the most holy place from the holy place. And the author of Hebrews says that we enter through the curtain for worship. That is His what? His flesh. You see, by His death, Jesus has redeemed a place for us to worship. As a pastor, I often see two pitfalls. These are two common pitfalls that I see as a pastor. Number one, the first pitfall is I will hear people because of maybe they're going through a struggle in their life. Maybe they're struggling with a besetting sin. Maybe they're going through a, a dark night of the soul. Or maybe they just struggle with the assurance of salvation. And they will often feel like they are 
unworthy to come to God and worship. How many of you know we're all unworthy to come to God and to worship, but this feeling for them is a hindrance for them in their worship. They feel as if they cannot approach God. They feel as if God is far and distant from them. Also, there's another pitfall where worship, for some, doesn't seem too important. It's not at the top of their priority list each and every week. They fail to see the great privilege that God has given to them that through the death of Jesus, a place for us for worship has been redeemed and not only are we called and commanded by God to gather with the saints for worship, but we have the great privilege to come before God and worship. And when we think about what Jesus has accomplished for us, I think it helps us to put these two pitfalls in perspective in their rightful place when we understand, as the author of Hebrews says, that we can come with boldness before the throne of grace. We can come with confidence before the throne of grace. We can come with full assurance of faith when we approach the Lord in worship. Why is that? Because we have a Savior who has redeemed a place of worship for us. You never have to be timid when you approach the Lord in worship. God will receive your worship. You, you have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, who has gone into the holy place on your behalf and makes your worship righteous and perfect and acceptable before the Lord. That is His continuing work as our high priest. And furthermore, it's a reminder to us, as Hebrews 10.25 will exhort us, not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. We're commanded that. We're called to that. Not to neglect gathering together with other Christians, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, to worship and to magnify the Lord. Not only is it a great privilege, it is a great command that God has given to us. And the author of Hebrews says, even all the more as you see what? The day drawing near. You see, as the return of Christ is approaching, you and I need corporate worship. We need corporate worship to encourage our souls and to remain steadfast in serving the Lord. We need corporate worship to remind us of of the to give us a foretaste of heaven we we need the common ordinary means of grace that God has ordained to bless and bless and nourish our souls we need it it's important to us as christians it's important that we hold up the lord's day as the most revered day of all the other days of the week and that we set apart that day as holy and sanctify it that we might enter into worship morning and evening. Just as we see the Old Testament saints offering those sacrifices to the Lord daily, morning and evening, now we have a day set apart by the Lord that we can enter into the holy place that God calls us because of our gracious Savior. The great privilege of worshiping the Lord. We have been redeemed 
for worship, dear Christian. You and I have been redeemed for worship. It is our great joy and privilege as Christians. What did Jesus accomplish by His death? Well, by His death, Jesus has redeemed a place for us to worship. And secondly, I want you to see in this passage, He redeems a people for worship. Not only does He redeem a place for worship, He also redeems a people for worship. Look here at the words of Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 49, he is indignant with the Sanhedrin. He is brash and brutish and insults them with his words there in verse 49 with, you know nothing at all. He has contempt for their words. He is, he is what he's getting at here is, Let's go ahead and utter the words that we're all thinking. That's what Caiaphas does. He is bold enough to mutter the words that all the others are thinking. And what is he thinking? Verse 50. Nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now Caiaphas... He agrees with their conclusion. If we allow Jesus to go on, there will be an uprising. The Romans will come in. They will destroy this temple. They will take away our nation. Now, ironically, this does happen, by the way. This will happen in about 40 years. A.D. 70, we know the Romans came in, took away their nation, and destroyed their temple. That does happen. Caiaphas here does not understand the full ramifications of his words. Look at, look at what John says here in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. My wife was reading this passage this morning and looking over the sermon notes and she says, well, why did Caiaphas say that? I said, well, keep reading. Keep reading here. And John tells us why he, says, why he said that, doesn't he? He didn't say this of his own accord. He was the high priest that year, and as the high priest that year, he made a prophecy concerning Jesus. That Jesus would die for the nation. And not only would Jesus die for the nation, verse 52 tells us, not for the nation only, but for whom? Also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, we've already seen this. John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, the Father has given to him certain sheep, and he is there in Israel, calling out the sheep in Israel who are the true Israel whom the Father has given to him. And then the good shepherd says what? I have other sheep from a different fold that you don't know about, and the Father has given them to me, speaking about the Gentiles. And so he says, I must call them two so that there can be one what? One flock and one shepherd. Jesus is, or John is picking up on that teaching of Jesus here. And what he's saying is that this nation is no longer confined to the geographical bounds of Israel. What Jesus is creating is a true 
Spiritual Israel that knows no geographical boundaries. And he is giving his life to save this nation. Not the nation of Israel, but he's giving his life to save the nation of Israel. Saying, Pastor, are you giving me the double talk? You understand what he's saying here? Not for the nation of Israel only, but for the nation of his church. They are those in Israel that the Father has given to Jesus and he calls them. And there are those outside the geographical boundaries of Israel that the Father has given to Jesus and He calls them so that He can gather them together so that they might be what? One group of children of God. That they might be united together. Do you see what John is saying here? What did Jesus accomplish by His death? By His death, Jesus redeems a people for... Worship. This comes to bear in the teaching of the New Testament. We think especially of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he speaks of the church comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And what does he call them? Well, he takes what was once true only of national Israel and applies it to the church, calling them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why does Jesus do that? Well, we've been redeemed for worship. Have you ever known anyone that's adopted a child? Maybe you yourself have been adopted or maybe you've adopted a child. You know someone who has adopted. I want you to imagine that child that's been adopted has gone through different foster homes, has been in the system for a while, and finally that child in their joy and delight is adopted into a family. But that child enters into that family, and rather than sleeping in the bedroom that the adoptive parents has provided, the child refuses to sleep there, choosing instead to sleep in a tent outside. And rather than that child choosing to embrace the family table and enter into the fellowship of the family at mealtime, the, the child that's been adopted refuses instead and insists on eating his meals out on the porch. And, and rather than embracing his new adoptive parents and, and new siblings and his adoptive family, he's quiet and withdrawn, will not speak to or interact with his new family. Your heart would go out to that child, wouldn't it? Your heart would, would want to help that child understand, listen, you have received a great blessing in this life. You've been adopted into a family. Once you were outside of a family, but you have been brought into a family with all the blessings of being brought into that family and, and you may choose not to interact with your family and you may refuse the fellowship of that family, but I want you to understand that because of your adoption, you have all these wonderful privileges that your family affords you. So too is a Christian who is withdrawn from the church. 
so too is a Christian who refuses to embrace the joy and the privilege that they have to gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day to worship God. So too is a child, and you, 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 you want to go up to that person and say, don't you understand and realize You've been adopted into the family of God. The blood of Jesus has purchased you, dear one. Enter into all the privileges that your family now affords you. Don't neglect the privileges. Come to the table that your Father has prepared for you. And maybe you think to yourself, you know, Pastor, sometimes... I really lack the desire to do that. Can I confess something to you? Sometimes I lack the desire too. Pastors aren't perfect. And if you could sit with the ruling elders of the church, they would probably confess they have times when they don't feel like gathering together with God's people either. And I'm sure the deacons have had those moment, moments just like you. And here's the great thing though, that the more we embrace the privileges of God, the more our affections change. Isn't that true? Don't we know that to be true? Haven't you, don't you know, haven't you experienced those Sundays where you've thought, boy, I really don't want to get up this morning. I, I, you know what? I don't want to go to church. I don't feel like getting up and getting dressed. I've had such a stressful week, but you know what? I'm going to go anyway. Haven't you yourself discovered the blessing of denying your flesh and entering into the corporate fellowship of God's people for worship? Haven't you yourself discovered that even in times of your own discouragement when you've lacked the desire to gather with God's people, that you've done it anyway? You've heard the Word preached. You've received the sacrament. You've sung the hymns, and your soul has been nourished. This is the great thing. That the more we gather with God's people, the more we have affection together with God's people. The more we enter into holy worship, the more we have a desire to worship the Lord. If you're adopted and you're redeemed, just because you lack the desire to gather with God's people, that doesn't change the fact that you're still adopted and redeemed in God's family. So even your lack of desires does not affect your status of being adopted into God's family. Isn't that good news? It's wonderful news. Embrace your identity, dear Christian. Embrace your family. Dear one, embrace the meal that the Lord has provided for you in the means of grace. By His death, you have been redeemed for worship. By His death, our Savior has redeemed a place for us to worship. By His death, our Savior has redeemed for Himself a people to worship Him. I want you to see with me the response here, this passage. This is the last thing that we see in this passage that Jesus' death accomplishes. Jesus' death accomplishes a place and a people for worship, but Jesus' death, it divides. 
the true from the false worshipers. Jesus' death divides the true from the false worshipers. One of the commentators that I read this week in preparation for the sermon, he pointed this out. The three groups of people that we see here at the end of this passage. Look with me at verse 54. Jesus, whether He knew through omniscience or He had somehow received a report, a tip about the Sanhedrin's plan, Jesus withdraws to Ephraim, no longer walking openly with the Jews. And who is with Jesus as He is withdrawn from the Jews? Well, the true Jews. His disciples. Is John referring to the twelve disciples or is he referring to those who truly put their faith in Jesus? And the answer is, hmm? John doesn't tell us which he means. It could be the twelve disciples. It could just be those who are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. But what we see is that Jesus' death divides true from false worshipers. There's a second group here I want you to see in this passage that the Passover is at hand and that Jews have gone to Jerusalem early to purify themselves and these are the enthusiastic people. They're the enthusiastic onlookers. They're, they are those who have heard about the plot to kill Jesus. This Jesus who have gained so much um, popularity and, and they are gathered in Jerusalem not only to prepare themselves for the Passover feast, but they're there to do what? They're there to witness all the drama unfold. Is Jesus going to come to the temple for Passover? Is Jesus going to arrive? Are the, are the, are the, the police of the temple, the temple guards going to arrest Jesus? And, and what will happen with all this? But these aren't true believers. These aren't those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. They are just those who are merely interested in seeing what happens to Jesus. And lastly, we see in verse 57 a reiteration of the chief priests and the Pharisees who have given orders that if anyone knew where He was, they should turn Jesus over that He might be arrested. And these are those who are, are not putting their faith and trust in Jesus at all. In fact, they are completely antagonistic of Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees who are determined to destroy Him. In this present evil age, in the church, you need to understand the church is not finished being purified. There will always remain in the nation of the church that knows no geographical bounds, but there always will be a mixed group of people in the church. Think about Jesus' parable about the, the wheat and the weeds. Jesus used that to describe the church. That the wheat and the weeds... The weeds are planted by the enemy and the, the wheat are those that are the true fruit of Christ and, and they grow up together until the last day and, and at the last day when Jesus returns, the harvest is brought in and the wheat and the weeds are separated. Think about Jesus' teaching at the end of the book of Matthew that 
Jesus on the day of judgment, he brings the flock together and even within the flock, there is a mixed group of animals in the flock. What two kinds of animals are in the flock? Sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. And what Jesus does is he sets the sheep on his right hand and he sets the sheep or the goats on his left hand. And he separates the sheep from the goats. Why? Because there has been a mixed flock even in the flock that Jesus has called. Think about the teaching of the Apostle John later on in his epistle where he says that many antichrists have come and they have gone out from us. Why? Because they were never of us. For if they had been, they would have continued with us. Is what John will say later in his epistle. We've been redeemed for worship, but by His death, Jesus separates and divides true from false worshipers. He calls us to examine our hearts, doesn't it? Are we a true worshiper? Have we had a, a deep work of grace take place in our own hearts? Have we been called by Jesus? Have we been regenerated or are we just merely in church? Has a true, sincere, genuine work of the Spirit taken place in our hearts? Is our worship true and sincere? Or are we drawing near the Lord with our bodies, but our hearts are far from Him? May it be by God's grace that our bodies are not only present in worship, but our minds and our hearts as well because of a true work of grace that has taken place in our lives. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for calling a people to Yourself for worship. We thank You for opening up for us way into Your presence for worship. And we pray and ask, Lord, that You would renew within our hearts a great love and zeal to be with Your people, to worship You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.